KBCS Music and Ideas. KBCS contributor Kevin Henry interviewed Noel Gomez, founder of the Organization for Prostitution Survivors, or OPS. So basically my story is really actually quite common. And what happened with me was I come from a middle-class family, looks okay from the outside, not okay on the inside, a lot of domestic violence, alcoholism, abuse, you know, um, a lot of verbal stuff. And um, that was the family I grew up in. And I started having like anxiety attacks and panic attacks really young from the fear of my father. And um, I discovered alcohol at about 13 years old. Started drinking with people and stuff like that. And I noticed that that took away my anxiety. And so I would drink whenever I could. And I ended up getting a boyfriend and he was my age, just, uh, you know, same age, just a kid, another kid that went to my school, and um, I ended up getting pregnant at 15. And when my family found out, my father told me to leave and to never come back. So I left and never came back. So basically, I was homeless at the age of 15 years old. So I couch surfed. Some parents felt bad for me, let me stay there for a while, you know, got around for a while with friends, but then, you know, that ends at a certain point, and um, you end up meeting a lot of different people when you're just on the streets, and you have all the freedom in the world as a youth, and you don't have any responsibilities or any parents or anybody telling you what to do, but you also don't have any money or hope for the future. And um, I met a guy at, in a grocery store parking lot, and he was there with some other guys, and he was, like, older than me, but not really a lot older than me. So he was old enough to where I thought he was really cute. And he had, like, a nice car, and he had nice clothes, and he had nice jewelry, and he wanted to talk to me. And so we started talking, and... Looking back now, I can remember the first things that he asked me were, where was my family? What was my situation? Where did I live? You know, did I have children? And where were they? And he was really interested in my situation, and which I thought meant that he cared. Then he became like my boyfriend, But as he was my boyfriend, he was now looking back, I realized what he was doing was grooming me all along. You know, he would start getting my nails done, getting my hair done, taking me to nice restaurants, doing things for me that I could not do for myself, treating me in a way that I'd never been treated before, you know, doing really nice things for me. But then, on the other hand, he was also abusive, Mm -hmm. which I was used to because that's what I came from. Could you describe the abuse a little bit? I was physical and emotional. So, like, if I did something that, you know, he taught me the language, which something that was out of pocket, which means something that 
I'm not supposed to do, like he would slap me. And that's like about the extent of it. There was no punching or, or beating me until much later. He told me he was a pimp, but I didn't believe him because like a lot of guys say that. And I was like, oh, you're a pimp. Yeah, right. I thought he was a drug dealer. And I was like, he's not a pimp. And I never saw girls or anything with him, so I didn't think that. And then one day he asked me if I wanted to come to California and on a road trip with him. And I said that I would. And I was really excited about it and happy about it. And, of course, cause every girl, young girl wants to go to Hollywood. And I thought I felt really privileged that he wanted me to go with him. And so we drove down to Hollywood, and basically that's when it all went down. And we were in a motel room on Sunset Boulevard, and I didn't have anything. He had my ID. He had everything. I had no money. I had nothing. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know anybody. And he got really violent, and he let me know that I was going to go out and I was going to make some money. Wow. And if I didn't, he knew where my son was, and he was going to kidnap my, have my son kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And also he was going to hurt me really bad and leave me there. That was how it all went down. And um, from then on, it was like I just got worse and worse and worse and worse, and the abuse got worse. But he was also very, very manipulative. These guys are really good at what they do. And they say that trafficking victims have the same type of PTSD as victims that have been in war. There's Stockholm Syndrome involved. These guys get in your head, and they convince you that you are nothing but what they've made you become. Mm -hmm. And... You're nothing without them, and you believe it. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. You get deeper and deeper and deeper. You get more depressed. You get more removed, isolated, and and, and then all you have is, is him. And so this yeah. went on for several years? That went on for several years, yeah. And um, I ran away one time, and... He found me. I would always run away back to Seattle. He would keep me mostly in San Diego, Arizona, out of Seattle, you know, because I'm from here. And he would, I would run back to Seattle. And one time he found me, he beat me up, handcuffed me, threw me in the trunk of the car. And I woke up in Portland. So, like, another time I left him, he put pictures, Xerox pictures of my son and put them all over the telephone poles and said, missing child. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he, he, you know, I would always end up going back because I was scared. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, the last time he beat me, he beat me so bad that he was afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't want me around him. Because, first of all, he didn't want anybody to see me with him, you know, or anywhere near him because I was so beat up. And I think he had also scared him because he almost killed me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up 
coming back to Seattle and I had to get CAT scans on my brain. I had to get all this stuff done. Um, my nose was broken. I mean, it was horrible. And um, that time I ended up staying away from him. I didn't, I didn't go back with him. And then he was arrested not too long after that. Now, what, what year was that roughly? What time frame was that? Well, he was arrested in 2000. I got away from us. I got away from him in like maybe 95. Mm. And you were like in your 20s then, right? Yeah, I was in my 20s then, yeah. Okay. I was in my 20s by the time I got away from him. And then I realized what happened was I was so beat down from my whole deal with him and I didn't think I was could do anything else never had a job I had no education no resume no nothing I had no idea how to live in the what we call um, the square world mm-hmm. we call in the civilian world I didn't know how to live in that world and so I figured out that there was escort services and then I ended up in, in strip clubs so I, there was a total of 15 years Mm. So I got out in two in two thousand four, I believe. And what was the turning point that got you from, I guess, the strip club escort situation to was it just like this big awakening one day, or was it a kind of a gradual transition that you went? It was very, it was really gradual. Yeah. Um, by the time you know I was in the strip club, I was like older for that game, I guess. I was a veteran. The, you know, these little 18-year-old girls were coming through the door, brand new, you know, and I'd watch them just turn into drug addicts really fast, and I was just getting really, really tired of it. And this and was in Seattle? I'm sorry. This, this, this was in Seattle. I didn't have a pimp, obviously, by that point, and I, so I was making enough money, so I figured out that I could save money and somehow get out of this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I um, saved some money, and not nearly enough money, but enough money to, like, help me out. And I just went in one day, and I walked out the door, and I was like, I'm never going back. Mm-hmm. And I never went back. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I was, what, 32 years old. I didn't have any idea. I had never had a job. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how I was going to, like, survive or make it in the civilian world at all. And back then there was no services, you know, and that's why I started off. Mm There was nobody to talk to or to help me, so I did it all on my own. And um, I just started going to school, and I got a job. My first job was at a bar, and it was perfect because I worked as a server, and it was like a nightclub bar, and I made good money, and it was cash, so it was a good transition. It took me many years to learn how to live off just uh, the paycheck. I didn't know how to do that. So it, it's been a long journey. And so let me but, ask you a question uh, before I forget, you know, because I know that you, you've told this story in 
various versions over the years. And how do you feel when you just recount those memories and everything? No, I mean, especially when I was being trafficked, I mean, that was absolutely horrifying. I mean, getting into cars with people you don't know, um, getting raped repeatedly by people you don't know and not being able to do anything about it, being beat up by Johns, being thrown out of cars, having guns to your head, being hit with baseball bats, all that kind of stuff is what happens out there. And so um, it doesn't bring any happiness to me at all, no. But it, but it also doesn't, like, um, hurt me to talk about it mm-hmm. because I've, I'm beyond that at this point in my life. It, you know, it, it doesn't hurt me to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you, you know, the willingness that you have in talking about it. And there was a big sting in Bellevue up at one of those really nice condominium towers. And I guess right. there were like 30 or 40 men, some of them uh, very prominent, including a local uh, sports caster in Seattle. And it right. turned out that it was a ring of, I guess, these girls from the Philippines. They were just, you know, running this prostitution ring out of this place. And, uh-huh. and, and I always thought, you know, because a lot of these guys, they go home to their families, they're, quote, upstanding, you know, men in the community. Don't they uh-huh. ever wonder or care? You know, they must know that these women a lot of times that they're with, especially I would think some of the ones that are from uh, foreign countries, are uh-huh. in, in a bad situation. But is it just the Johns just somehow detach themselves from the significance of what's going on? You don't, you never know. I mean, you never know if the person is being trafficked because they're not going to tell you. It could be any woman or boy or whoever. They're never going to tell you that, you know, they go home and, you know, they have to have a certain amount of money or they get beat. They're never going to tell you, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like it could be anybody anybody that you're buying could be being exploited by a third party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I I guess, and and this leads me to just the whole idea of, you know, being proactive in the sense that, you know, I always think that a lot of adults who wind up in jail or doing horrible things didn't, most of them didn't start out that way. But somewhere along the line, they got the idea that it was okay to hurt other people or this is the, it was acceptable to, you know, express their anger by beating up another person or buying them or whatever. And I guess I just feel like there should be some training and education with young boys and girls when they're much, much younger about just respect and how you treat another human being because it's just amazing to me how people can just, you know, mistreat and then justify it somehow in their own mind, I guess. Well, most definitely. I mean, and what it needs to happen and what we're, there's an organization here called Seattle Against Slavery. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of work in the schools and as young as we can possibly get, um, or they, as young as we can get uh, is when you talk to the kids. And the boys and the girls are learning about sex on the Internet through porn, Mm -hmm. which is violence against women. So very scary times right now because this is where our 
children are learning how to treat the opposite sex, you know. Mm-hmm. And you, it, you know, back in the old days, maybe a boy would find a playboy under his dad's pillow or something, you know. I mean, the, now it's like they're watching hardcore porn on their phone, right? You know, and like this is where they're learning. So we've got to get into the schools and talk to them about how, you know, that's not real, you know, how the, you know, and explain to them how you treat each other and and really teach them because it's our job. It's our job to do that. And, you know, we've got to, we've got to, or else it's just going to, this is just going to get worse and the violence is going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I just think in, there's just a desensitization, I think, that happens in society. Mm-hmm. It's not just something to go, oh, well, you know how guys are and, you know, the prostitutes. Well, they're, you know, they're in it for the – it's almost like sometimes people will justify it by saying, well, the prostitutes are like entrepreneurs, you know. And, mm-hmm. and again, like you just said, I mean, some maybe they, they've got their act together and that's – one thing, but so many of them, like you say, are being trafficked and beaten up and abused, and mm-hmm. there's just there's just no uh, advantage that these women have, or or boys. It's not always women, of course. Right? Well. No, a lot of boys. Um, yeah, I mean, people think what they want to think. You know, they don't. It's a huge problem. I mean, it's it's a huge problem. Think about it. Like, okay, the drug the drug car- cartels, the the gangs, everybody. Okay, you can sell drugs. You can only sell them one time. You can sell guns. You can only sell them one time. You can sell a person. You can sell a person a whole bunch of times. So, sex trafficking is huge because it's. There's so much money involved in this, you know, and people, yeah, they don't think it's a problem. That's insane to me because, uh, I mean, maybe it's not insane because if you don't really know about it, how would you know, right? But Exactly. The thing is, is that, right, domestic sex trafficking, domestic sex trafficking here in the United States is huge, huge problem. I mean, yep. I work with youth. You know, I've worked with youth since I've been out of the life. I cannot tell you, almost every girl that I've met with that's been involved in the juvenile justice system has been trafficked. Mm-hmm. Almost every one of them. And you know what? You would never know it because their record doesn't show it. You would never know it unless you've been in it because you can tell by their language. You can tell by the way they carry themselves. You can tell a lot of things. And they will admit it once you talk to them and tell them, hey, I was in that too, you know, so you can talk to me. But I have met in foster youth. I mean, that's just the story of foster youth. So many foster youth get involved and get trafficked because they're looking for love. Well, They're looking for say, family. And when you say the language and their body language or the way they talk, could you mm-hmm. be a little more descriptive about that? What are some of the signs that somebody might be able to recognize that somebody's being trafficked? I mean, I can do a training on the language. We, don't, <laughs> we, we use a whole different language. 
than civilians, okay? So there's, and I'm using it right now a little bit. You know, there, there's a whole different language that, that's being used. So there's little words like, you know, like, like, um, like, you know, they'll say, oh, charge it to the game or something like that. Or, or they'll say something like, oh, you know, my, they always call them their boyfriends. They're never going to say my trafficker or my pimp. They always think it's their boyfriend, you know, but, but you know, they'll have their nails done. They'll, they'll have their hair done. They'll, you know, maybe be wearing um, clothes that they, they probably can't afford or where would they get those or they all of a sudden start having new things that they that you you don't know where they're getting the money for them, you know, um, starting to dress differently, um, tr- trying to be more, you know, grown up than they're, you know, grown than they are, um, you know, all those things, I, you know, but the nails are always a giveaway. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, you that's got a 13 great. or 14-year-old in a room, and she's got her nails done. I know right away that she's been trafficked. That was Noelle Gomez, the founder of OPS, or the Organization for Prostitution Survivors, located in Burien, Washington. Gomez spoke with KBCS contributor Kevin Henry. Go to kbcs.fm for more interviews and stories.